You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Do you know the person I'm about to describe? With great anticipation, he or she accepts a job right out of school, vigorously works to exceed expectations, impress the boss and co-workers, and move up in the organization only to discover years later that the job seemed pointless, the politics stifling, and that profits counted more than service. Even worse, that person feels trapped in this soulless employment for another 20 or 30 years. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome once again to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. I'm excited to announce that our sponsor is Audible. They are offering you, our listeners, a free download of one of your favorite audio books. You get to choose from 180,000 titles, and you also get a one-month free trial of Audible's entire service. Simply go to www.audible.com audibletrial.com forward slash story power. That is www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. For your convenience, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio, as well as the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. Because the theme of the show is Change Your Story, Change Your Life, I've created a free gift for you, my listeners. It is an ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life in Business. You can download it immediately at www.changeyourstorypodcast.com. One of the most rewarding things in this podcast for me is my ongoing dialogue with you, my storytellers, my listeners. Let's continue that dialogue. Keep sending your comments about what you're getting from the show and what you'd like to see in it going forward. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. I promise to read every message I receive, and to choose some of them to share with you on the show. Today's guest begins one of his books with the disturbing words that you heard at the beginning of this podcast. He himself has had a very interesting career journey, 22 years working for IBM, involved in several thriving tech startups, worked as a high school math teacher, and as a fundraiser. He actually wandered the career desert for, well, a little more than 30 years and made many mistakes and kept learning 
growing, and redefining himself. Today, he has found this calling, and he runs a successful career development company. I won't say career development, but when you go to his company called Career Pivot, he will help you to discover what your career should be, and that is not just what you should be doing as work, but how you can make money and live your passion at the same time. His company website, careerpivot.com, has been rated by Forbes as one of the top 100 career websites online. He's written a fascinating book, which you've just heard a small excerpt from, and it's called Repurpose Your Career, a practical guide for the second half of your life. He is truly a man who knows what it means to create new, empowering stories and live into them. His name is Mark Miller. I'm really excited to have him on the show today. Mark, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. We're going to start, imagine this, at the beginning. (laughs) Okay. Where did you grow up, Mark? I was born in Bayside, Queens, New York City. Grew up in Joysey. And oh went to high school in East Brunswick, exit nine on the Joy Z Turnpike. Oh my God, I didn't realize that. You know, um, I grew up in the Bronx. <laughs> well, my oh. grandparents were in Brooklyn, and um, I, I always say New Jersey is a great place to be from. I say that about the Bronx. Yeah, I okay. get you. I get you. So, what was your childhood like? Oh, I was a very, very shy kid. Um, I was had a huge head of red hair. I was really skinny. When I was a senior in high school, I was I was made the state finals in the quarter mile in New Jersey, and I was six four and one hundred and forty pounds, pale white with a huge head of red hair. I was not a chick magnet. You know what? Apart from the six foot four uh, part of your description, you almost sounded like you were describing Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I was very shy, introverted, which I now claim. When I went to work, I took on a different persona, and I learned to be an extrovert. You know what's interesting about that? Um, I have met. Many very dynamic people, people who are very alive on a stage in front of as many as ten or 20,000 people, and by their own admission, some of them are introverts. They're extroverts when they're in their public persona, but when they go home after a presentation, they collapse for about 24 to 48 hours. Is that anything like you? Yes, I am a what I refer to as a closet introvert. Mm. So there's a really great book out there by Susan Cain called um, Quiet. And one of the things she talks about is over half the people, about half the people in this country are introverts. 
but we get paid more to be extroverts. Mm. So I was, I was a public speaker for IBM for over 10 years. That's all I did. I got very good at it. Today, like I put on a workshop here the other, the other evening when I was done after three hours and I was on for three hours, I walk out and I go, Ugh. Mm-hmm. let me go have a glass of wine. Let me go get away from me. <laughs> Leave me alone. And I go veg. You know, I'm, I'm glad you shared that. By the way, that book, it's interesting how things come up. I recently went to New York City with a good friend of mine, a woman, who discovered that book in the Strand bookstore, bought it, and brought it back to Toronto and absolutely fell in love with it. And she uh, would really get what you're talking about. Now, did you come from a big family, Mark? Oh, no. I came from a very small family. Uh, My father was an economist for the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, My mother believe it or not, entered Columbia University in the 1931 at the age of 13. Uh, Never got a degree, although she had enough credits to get a degree. So both my parents had incredibly high IQs. My brother was one of these people who had 1,500 plus on his SATs and went off and eventually was pursuing his PhD as a radio astronomer. Didn't get the PhD. Me, I graduated from high school barely being able to read. I read it about 30 words a minute, hmm. but I went off to Northwestern's engineering school and graduated in three and a half years without ever taking an English class. Very, which, very interesting. Well, it, this is very typical. I was very, very learning disabled. And by the way, I learned from my son's pediatrician that when you have parents with very high IQs, the level of learning disabilities goes up dramatically. You, th- you think that's because... Uh, at least unconsciously, you're kind of intimidated and don't think that you can be as, you know, as smart as them? No, I think it's very genetic because my son inherited all my learning disabilities, which were many. And it's very genetic. And so, therefore, you become, you know, I'm, I'm really smart. I knew how to work the system. By the way, we discovered my son in second grade, we had him tested and he had he got through first grade barely be able to read because he worked the system. He could sit down. He could figure out what the book said by the pictures, how people reacted. He could figure it out, and he didn't have to read the words. You know, uh, this is a fascinating topic to me because what it tells me is that this is another area where we need to create a new story around. What is intelligence and how we, the criteria we use to determine intelligence. I mean, more and more of the people that I meet, entrepreneurs especially, are people who had a terrible time in school and are enormously successful in life and business. So that's fascinating. That really is. When you thought about, as a kid, about becoming an adult, did you have a vision of what you wanted to be? Heck no. No, uh, I knew I was good at math. That was about it. I didn't read very well. So I, like a lot of my peers, I said, oh, I'm good at math. I'm going to go be an engineer. Now, I ended up in high school taking some programming classes. Yes, in 1972, I was learning how to programme. 
program a computer. And, but did I have a real strong vision of who I was? Nope. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I have found that with so many, particularly guys, the male brain doesn't finish developing until 25. Hmm. So therefore, asking an 18-year-old to make a career decisions is really stupid. Guys at 18 are stupid. <laughs> when I taught, I, I taught in inner city high school, uh, where, by the way, 90 of my, 90% of my kids were poor, 90% of my kids had probation officers. That does not mean they were bad kids. And I told all my girls that guys were scum. Oh, he's wonderful. He says, no, he's 17. I know what's on his brain. It's not pretty. And then I told all my guys that women were evil. <laughs> and then we, my second year there, we had 60 pregnancies out of 2,000 students. We had six zero, 29 freshman pregnancies. Wow. Different world. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And, and so that's the key piece. So, like, I'll use my son as an example, who's 32 now. Uh, I told him his freshman year when he graduated from high school, he used to go off to college. He went off to the University of Dayton in Ohio. And I told him, don't flunk anything. Don't take any advanced classes and just get through your freshman year. By the way, my son graduated in four years. Mm -hmm. All his buddies got on the six to eight year college plan. And because all of them, all their parents pushed them to make choices that they weren't prepared to make. It's very interesting you mentioned about in the mid-20s that where it hits, because uh, I wandered around uh, restless and not knowing what I wanted. Um, uh, when I focused on something, I was good at it, but very often it's still not what I wanted. And I discovered my love for acting in my mid-20s, and that's the career choice that I, um, the career path that I followed. So it kind of confirms what you're talking about. Now, who would you say influenced you the most when you were a young boy? Oh, probably my track coaches. Um, I had a number of them in high school. And as I was trying to make decisions and I was floundering around, I got to college. I hated college. I found it very difficult. I was a horrible test taker. And, and again, I could, I didn't read very well. So it was always going back to my track coaches, even when after I got to, got into college, they're the ones I went back to seek advice. They were essentially, they were my, my secondary parents, you might say. They were my male role models. And, and how would you say they influenced you to, what things did you get from them that contribute, you say, to today's success? Well, number one, it's the, it was my ability or their direction for me to learn from what I was experiencing. So I have managed to flow from career to career. I'm, my, I'm on my seventh career. And I'm, by the way, I'm sick. I turned 61 this month. And I have been able to largely flow because I pay attention. Hmm. I listen a lot. And, and admittedly, I, you know, I, in fact, I'm writing a blog post right now on 
the personas or roles we take when we go to work. Mm -hmm. In other words, we are all actors at work. We all, when we go in there, we take on that persona. We take on that role. And at times, it really sucks. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, you know, I use example. When I went to work for IBM in 1978, I was a developing word processors. I was been paid for the time a lot of money. I was 22. I bought my first house. I mean, and I hated it. Now, everyone told me what a great job I had, but yuck. But I, I took on that role and internalized it. And it's a real challenge because many of us, I, I run into a lot of clients who get, who've been doing something for 20 and 30 years, and they don't even realize that they have reshaped themselves to fit that role. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, they usually, by the time they reach their 50s, have made themselves miserable. Mm-hmm. Even though they're very successful. So just because you're good at something doesn't mean it's the thing you should be doing. <laughs> because we we develop a lot of skills. And, and here's a, there are talents and there are skills. So there are, the talents are those things that you do innately. Skills are things you learn. And largely we learn skills because we get paid for them. And there's a great Larry Bird quote, and I'll paraphrase it, and I usually don't get it right, is a winner is someone who understands their God-given talents, develops skills based on those talents to be able to work hard and become a winner. And I claim, if you remember, Larry Bird, he was not a great athlete. He was slow. He couldn't jump. But I claim his innate talents were probably great vision and great hand dexterity which he worked his butt off to become a great shooter and passer. Mm -hmm. Now the challenge is when we overuse skills that are not attached to our innate talents, that's when you get burnout. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're denying a very um, important part of yourself that uh, is crying for expression, right? Well, so it's, it's like my public speaking. I did that for 10 years. I'm a phenomenally good public speaker. I get on stage I, I, when I worked for IBM, I referred to myself as an articulate techno-weenie or a geek that could speak, <laughs> which we all know is an oxymoron. And, or as I now refer to myself as a recovering engineer. Yes, there's a 12-step program for that. <laughs> and I, if I, and I, I have people tell me, you need to become a full-time speaker. And I go, nope. If I had to do that more than once a week, probably more than once a month, I'd be toast. I'd be exhausted. I do not want to, it's, I, I am very good at it. Wow. It exhausts me. Hmm. So that would be one of your skills, you say? Yes. I, I, I've developed, I worked in an IBM briefing center where I presented to customers probably eight, 10 times a week. And these were audiences, I mean, from five to 500. Mm-hmm. I was talking at a conference probably once, twice a month. Audiences up to two, three thousand. I could get on stage and I, boy, I could, I was good. Well, when I did it in my 40s, I had the energy. Now that I'm in my 60s, I don't quite, even though I'm very fit, I don't quite have that energy anymore. 
and nor do I want to do it anymore. Let me ask you, how did you choose IBM or did it choose you? Oh, they chose me. I, you know, I, I, they came to campus and, and again, I'm a, I joke, I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. I was raised to be an employee, to go work for a father-like company that would take care of me. And IBM was that. They came in. I said, I have a job for life. And, of course, what happened was three-quarters of the way through, they moved my cheese. Mm -hmm. And so I, what I did in 2000, I left after 22 years after they screwed me on my pension. And I went, goodbye. And it turned out it was the smartest financial move I ever made. I went to work for a successful tech startup that was bought out by Lucent. Uh, my options were worthless, but I got enough in retention bonuses to pay off my house and pay off, finish funding my son's college education. So at 46, I was debt free. Nice. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, cause I think you, you anticipated one of my questions about when did you first become aware of a need to grow beyond IBM and create a new identity? It was well, just, yeah. 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 It was interesting. I remember talking to an old boss back in 1999 and, Doug looked at me and says, well, they took the pension away. And by the way, they gave it back to us who were over 40. And I said, you know what? I don't trust them. And he says, well, they took it away once. They can't take it away again. I said, oh, yes, they can. And they will. And they did. Hmm. And it also made me realize I was eight years from getting full retirement. And I'm going, hmm, do I want to wait around eight years and be not be happy for something that may not be there? And the reality was, I left in 2000, the guy who replaced me in, the, in a marketing job, and he was a better marketer than I was, and they let him go three years later. So I wouldn't have made it. So it was like, hmm. So one of, in hindsight, one of the things that I have done in my career is I have never waited I have, I've always planned and executed. One of the things that we are trained to do is to wait for opportunities to appear and then react to them rather than plan it. So that's why I started my business and I call it career design. It's plan this sucker out because things today are changing so fast I'm about to do a series of blog posts on, um, on automation. And if you think your career will not be affected by automation, I don't know what you're smoking. Have you read the um, bold by Peter Diamandis? Yeah, I've read a couple of books and it's, you know, it's, there's some people like, I'll use the example. You're watching, you're watching the NBA playoffs right now. As soon as the game's over, You'll go pop up the ESPN app, and there's a, there's a write-up within 10 minutes of the game. By the way, that's done by a robot. Mm -hmm. Journalism in many fact-driven uh, areas is all written by robots. Uh -huh. And you say, well, journalism can't be replaced by robots. I say, yeah, it can. You bet it can't. Well, they're going to replace surgeons eventually, too. Oh, sure. I, the, one of the big ones is uh, radiologists. Mm-hmm. You know, be able to read x-rays? 
IBM's Watson can outdo most radiologists today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the idea is you have to be, learn to become nimble. And I, I, I wrote a blog post last year, year before, called Has Your Job Been Smacked? And SMAC stands for S-M-A-C, Social, Mobile, Analytics, or Cloud. Your, those will touch everything. I totally agree. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons I'm so fascinated by the work that Diamandis is doing, because it's all about that. It's all about embracing the new reality and may, not only making the most of it, but uh, enriching your life with it. Yes. Well, I, I'll put it bluntly. As a solopreneur, the tool, the technology tools I have available to me for very little is amazing. Well, mm -hmm. look what we're doing. We're yep. talking over a free connection. Probably you're, you're, you're recording this with probably a 10 or 15 or $20 piece of software and you are broadcasting it out to the world. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I am on, my podcast is on Libsyn and I think I pay 20 bucks a month. Mm -hmm. I, this, this, right. This is really inexpensive. I know. And you're in Texas and I'm in Canada. <laughs> That's right. So what were the tech startups that you contributed to? Uh, the first one was Agira. Uh, we were a network processor startup. The chipset I worked on is now owned by Intel. And it is in all the three, uh, five LTE and 5G base stations around the world. Uh, I developed the training and certification program for that. And I left there in 2003 and then I hooked up with life-size communications, which was high-definition video conferencing, and which was eventually bought out by Logitech. And again, I built a training and certification program for the, the partner channel. Um, that eventually got, <laughs> that's become obsolete as, as, as everything has, when we got started in 2007, a HD camera was, you know, $10,000. Now it, it's virtually free in your smartphone. Mm -hmm. That's how fast things changed. Now, how and why did you become a high school math teacher? Well, I was traveling the world. I've taught in 40 different countries. And then on July 11th of 2002, I was riding my bicycle, came down a hill. I was riding with my bike club. I was riding my Bianchi touring frame. So a big, heavy uh, steel touring bike. And I came down a hill at about 30 miles an hour, turned into a blind turn, and hit a Toyota Corolla going the same direction, going the opposite, opposite way. Whoa. Uh, I totaled a 96 Toyota Corolla with my body and my bike. And I've got a, I've got a, I'm doing a revised blog post, which will come out on May 3rd. Uh, I don't know when this is going to get released on how that was a mammoth gift. As it turned out, uh, I spent five days in the trauma center. I tore up a knee, I broke a hip, I dislocated a shoulder, broke a bunch of ribs, broke the clavicle, had imprints of the pads of the helmet in my head, but I had no internal injuries and no brain injuries I'm willing to admit to. And, because people say I'm nuts anyway. 
So uh, they had me walking on crutches in three days. They threw three titanium screws in my hip, not steel, but titanium. We got to be high tech. And they, I was back on a bike in 10 weeks. Uh, I was on crutches in three days. I was back on a bike in 10 weeks, flying back to China in four months. Oh, by the way, I flew right into the, into the SARS epidemic bird flu in Guangdong province back in 2002. Uh, it is what I refer to as my WTF moment. Why am I doing this? Uh, my son had just graduated from high school. And as it turned out, it was a blessing because I was home with him the whole summer before he went off to college. And we had some great discussions that summer. Like, you're going to college. You can eat like crap or you can eat healthy. It's your choice. Your first college roommate. Not going to be your best buddy. The odds of throwing two 18-year-old guys in the same room and being best buddies is almost zero. But you have to respect each other's privacy. What I learned four years later after he graduated was he listened. I don't know if you had an 18-year-old boy, but he tell you this, you have no idea when you say stuff whether it actually goes in, whether it actually sticks. So if I hadn't had the accident, I wouldn't have had that time with him. So it was a blessing. In what other ways did that brush with death uh, radically change your perspective on the world? Well, it's as I have a chapter in the book, uh, it, that was what I refer to as a moment of clarity. I've had several of these in my life. And a moment of clarity is we look at life through filters. Every once in a while, something happens, both good and bad, that suddenly says the filters come down and we see what's really important. And it was that bonding with my son that I saw, wow, this is important. And so we all go through these, through these moments of clarity. It, it could be births, deaths, um, you know, marriages, divorces, new jobs, losing your job. They're all, these all get you to reevaluate what's important. Yes, that is very powerful, Mark. It's a theme that comes up in many people's lives. Now, you eventually developed the Launchpad Job Club. Can well, you talk... I can you talk sure. a bit about that, and how did you discover it and become involved with it? Well, I've, uh, when I went left and got my math teaching certificate, and I came out after two years, and I was lost. I was completely lost. Financially, we were okay. This was 2006. I needed to, at some point of time, go back to work. But I found Launchpad, and Kathy Lansford, uh, who founded it, and she wrote the forward in my book, this, this, this book. And she founded this job club that came out of the dot-com bust in 2001. And, and when Texas, it was originally part of Texas Workforce Solutions, which it then tried to spin it out. And Kathy took it and made it a 501c3. And I joined the board in very quickly in 2006 because what she had done was create a community that it supported itself. One of the things that was typical of that time was a lot of people were being spit out by big corporate giants here in, in Austin, 
Dell, IBM, Motorola, Freescale, and these are people who've been working for the same company for 20 plus years, or as I like to say, they were institutionalized, and I, I picked that up from the Shawshank Redemption in Brooks, um, where they didn't know any different. And suddenly they're spit out and they are lost. And if you ask almost any of them, they would have, before showing at Launchpad, they would have thought they're the only ones who are feeling the way they did, which was really lost. And then they would show up at our Friday meetings and suddenly go, oh, there are a lot of folks just like me. That's comforting. And I've been involved with that organization ever since. I'm the longest standing board member other than our founder. Right now, I am the longest standing board member because Kathy's on a hiatus. She and her husband are hiking the Appalachian Trail for the next six months. And so it's, it's growing an organization that is there to serve the unemployed, the underemployed, and primarily those, as I like to refer to, in the second half of life. Mm-hmm. That, that must be pretty rewarding. Oh, it's very rewarding. I have learned a lot. Uh, when I started my business career pivot, that my first year, I, I, I'm a Berkman consultant. I use the Berkman assessment. I did a lot of very cut rate to free assessments for my folks at, at Launchpad. And I learned an awful lot from them. As a recovering engineer, I see patterns. And so I could, if I've done four or 500 of them, it's, it's real easy to see the patterns, particularly the patterns of, of a lot of the people I deal with are what I refer to as square pegs. They don't fit the traditional roles that corporations want you to make. Again, this is, again, they're, they will take on the persona that they are told to take on, and then they make themselves completely miserable. And what happens is I, I, I saw, and now I can, like I just did a gentleman from Puerto Rico yesterday, where I could tell you exactly what his problems are and why. A lot of it comes from childhood, his religious upbringing. He's highly, highly creative. And oh, by the way, he spent a lot of time in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And, and, he's, and he's a musician. And oh, by the way, there are two kinds of musicians. The, the classical musicians, which is real interesting. I wouldn't have known this, but when you're learning Mozart, there's only one way to play that. If you are playing the Beatles, there are lots of ways to play it. So the people who are classical musicians versus people who are in rock and roll and who are successful and like it are very different. Yet they're both musicians and they're both very creative, but in very different ways. And so this is what I've kind of, you know, as I said, I, it's, it's kind of like the, the, the one movie, you know, I see dead people. Uh, mm -hmm, I see mm -hmm. patterns. Mm -hmm. I see patterns. By the way, that's my talent. Is yeah, that's well, that's wonderful. That is wonderful. And that you recognize it and you know how to use it to serve people. What? Uh, how do you define a career pivot? Okay. When we, when we want to make a change, 
particularly in the second half of life. We have an issue. We have obligations. Many of us have mortgages, spouses, um, kids going to college. Uh, we're trying to save for retirement. If I'm going to make a change, it isn't suddenly I am going to make this big leap. No, I'm going to make incremental pivots. Now, what most of us do is, well, let me take a step back. All my career changes, and I've done seven of them, have been what I call half-step career changes. And what that means is I had one foot in the old world, I had one foot in the new world, and there was a relationship that took me across. In other words, I never did it alone. Now, what usually happens, you repurpose either your industry knowledge or your skills and take your skills into a new industry. So I have a I have several podcasts on this and I'm where so for example my intern who's in her 50s a lot of people when I say intern they assume it's you know a 21 year old where Elizabeth had spent almost her entire career in in air and water environmental permitting by the way she's a closet creative she eventually got sick of it so what we did was, within her current company, she pivoted into a business development and marketing role. They allowed her to do that. There were a number of shifts in the company, but they allowed her to do that because she had the industry knowledge. Oh, after three years of doing that, and she picked up some more marketing skills, she was hired by an international mining equipment company to do a pure marketing role where she gets to actually be real creative. So the joke here is uh, she, if you have big rocks in your yard, she can help you. She can sell you a rock crusher. And, and it's a matter of and probably where she will go next might be completely out of this engineering world into, a, in, into something that's more fulfilling than rock crushers and conveyors. And it's, it's, it's incrementally moving out. I've got another one where uh, Mike Martin, who he, he spent his career as in industrial sales. And oh, by the way, throughout his career, one of the things he'd always wanted to do was be a pilot. And he kept on pursuing that on and off. And at one point in time, in, in industrial sales, as we know, B2B sales in many instances is dying. Um, and I won't get into the details, but so much is going, the, the sales process is going online. And so he thought about getting his teaching certificates. And he thought, and he, and he found he liked that. And that was a good, good thing to learn. And, but to, he had to get his, he had to finish up his bachelor's degree because he never got it. And he had a aviation undergraduate, uh, sorry, a, associate's degree. So he got a aviation, uh, he finished off his aviation bachelor's and we were talking the one day and he says, you know, when I was a kid, if it had wings, wheels, or keels, it was cool. If it was big and loud and moved, it was cool. So what, what did he do? He pursued and got a job, believe it or not, driving trains in the Houston Metro line. Hmm. And what he actually, the job he actually ended up with was first testing out the new line 
And by the way, his pilot skills played right into this. Because pilots are very checklist-oriented. They're very safety-oriented. And he ended up training all the operators on that initial, the, the new red line. And after two years, he got kind of sick of it. His wife was back here in Austin. He was living in a mobile, mobile um, uh, a trailer in, in, in Houston. And he came home, and he's, I've been working with him on and off for the, for the last year. And he finally, believe it or not, what he is doing now, he is a drone pilot instructor for Dart Drones. And you may know Dart Drones because they were on Shark Tank. Uh, hmm. They are partially owned by Mark Cuban. Hmm. And, and he is having a blast. And all of this happened very quickly. And it was a matter of just, and, and, and by the way, going down to Houston and doing the, everything he did down there gave him tremendous confidence. So there was a reason he, he, he had to go do that. And now he can take on the world. So how would you recommend to people listening if they were thinking of uh, changing careers to successfully make their first career pivot. Okay. I, there are three things that need to happen. First thing, know thyself. And by the way, most of us, by the time we reach our fifties, we don't know who we are. We have taken on these personas and many of us have owned them to such an extent. They become us and well, we, we act that way. So that's where I use, I have my own evaluation. It is, uh, that's a lot of what I do with clients is get, to, is to unmask them. At the same time, you can do it with friends. You can do it through moments of clarity. You have to figure out, and what I do is I use my assessments to poke you. I poke you in the underbelly to go back to the worst in times of your career and the best of times in your career and understand why. Because, by the way, a lot of us make the same mistake over and over again. That's what I refer to as career insanity. You know, Einstein defined insanity as doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. It's kind of like I joke the fact that I have, I've taken, at least twice I've taken jobs that I knew I shouldn't have taken. Because I'd left jobs exactly like it previously. Second thing is... You got to get, you, you have to be aware of the assumptions you are making. Or as I said before, I call this MSU, make stuff up. We, when we start looking and pursuing a new direction, we will fill the void if we, we, if we don't know, our habit is just to go fill it. So I'll use the example. I thought I was going to go be a high school math teacher. Okay, I was an engineer. I've taught adults for 20 years. I've done this in 40 different countries. There's a math teacher shortage. Of course they would want me. No, they didn't want me. They didn't want, in my cohort, any one of us who was a male and over 40, we couldn't get interviews. Why? We don't do what we're told. They want highly compliant people. And I got a lot of funny stories. I was mentoring my principal as we got a Gates grant for high school redesign. And I, she just assumed she's going to tell everybody what they're going to do, and they're just going to go do it. And I said, no, they're not. <laughs> uh, so similarly, when I went off to teach high school math, one of the other good ones was I just thought, well, I came out of the corporate world. 
when I get my new job in Austin Independent School District, I'm just going to sign up for their health insurance. This was 2004. And then I show up, I get my job. By the way, I only got hired the week before school started. And my payment, my out-of-pocket expense, was double my COBRA payment. I went, what? I had, you know, take home of $2,500, $3,000 a month, and my, my, my out-of-pocket expense for my health insurance was going to be $1,000. Hmm. Oh, I went and started asking other teachers. None of them insure their spouses or their children to the school district. Nobody does that. I just assume, because that's what we all did in the corporate world. The third thing is build your tribe. Now, you, you're not going to do this alone. And I call your tribe is the 150 people who you probably know who can, if you went for a favor, would prob- if you asked for a favor, it would be granted. Now, the, the number 150 is also known as a, the Dunbar number. It's been a scientifically proven that we can maintain a maximum of about 150 relationships. So the 5,000 LinkedIn connections I have, I'm sorry, those are not, they're not all part of my tribe. So you need to look at who is in your tribe, and then there's a subset of that, which is going to be your fan club. And the fan club is that small number of people who are just going to go, 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 go. When you go down, that they're going to help you emotionally and pick you up. I can tell you, I would have not gotten through my first year of school teaching if I had not had my fan club. Mm-hmm. Right. I, by the way, first year as a school teacher is hell. Because you are doing something you've never done before every single day. Oh, and you don't get to repeat it for one year. It's hard. And then then there's all kinds of other stuff layered on top of that. And so it's go out and build that support. Now, by the way, I'm a guy. I don't even like asking for directions, much less asking for help. My first year teaching high school, I had, I was teaching algebra one, which I had a really good algebra one mentor and I was lost teaching algebra two. And I finally, after about four or five weeks, there was young lady, Jenna, who's 27. I was old enough to be a father. I went over to her and I said, can I have your lesson plans, please? And then I followed, then what I did was, is I stayed two days behind her the rest of the year. And I played little puppy dog. And the reason why I stayed two days behind her was if I didn't understand something, I could always go watch her. In other words, I was no longer the expert. I was a guy in my late forties. I was used to being the smartest guy in the room. And by the way, I was doing something that put it bluntly, I wasn't prepared for. Hmm. So, right. So it's, at times, you have to take the ego and suck it up and go look for the help and build that support around you because you ain't going to do it alone. No, it's so true. Absolutely true. Now, you use an expression called a generational echo. Define that for us. Sure. Um, when we all leave home, we do one of two things. 
we either do exactly what our parents tell us to do, or we do the exact opposite. Or another way of putting this is if you ask anyone who's raising your kids and you ask them, are you raising your children the same way you were raised? And the answer isn't no, it's usually hell no. So why do you expect them to be like you? They're not. They are the echo of you. So I'll use the example. My father and my mother, born in 1918, 1920, grew up through the Depression. They understood deprivation. Everyone in that generation, every male served in World War II. They saved money like crazy. They're children, baby boomers. Did we trust government? They trust my parents trust big government. Did we trust government? Heck no, we had Vietnam and Watergate. Did we save money? No, we spent money like crazy. The technology that affected our generation, my generation, is 1969. Visa credit cards and television. I always joke 1962. I would sit down and watch the Flintstones every Sunday night. The sponsor was Winston Cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Right? So, as baby boomers, we were private. We were highly competitive. So, you look at the millennials. How do we raise them? Everyone gets a gold trophy. Everyone gets a blue ribbon. And by the way, they created Facebook. So, they are the opposite of us. And I, I can go through from generation to generation silent generation, those born during the Depression, World War II, um, they had incredibly high divorce rates. And by the way, their children's generation, Generation X, has the lowest divorce rates. They don't get married <laughs> half, because half of them grew up in single-parent households. So we see this yin and yang going back from each generation. And, it's, and I, I call it an echo effect. Because, you know, it's, it's like right now, uh, I, here in Austin, we have a lot of tech startups and we have these Gen X managers and, and very self-reliant. They put themselves through college and they end up having these 22, 23, 24-year-olds. And they come and tell them, you know what? You need to be here at 8 o'clock in the morning. And the 22-year-old goes, why? Because I told you to. And they go, but why? So why do they do that? Because we told them to. We told them, we told them to question everything. We told them to ask. In other words, they are doing what we wish we had done. It's um it's like a comedy. It's, oh, a com- it's it's a great comedy of life. Yeah. And what I'm getting from you is that it's important to really understand this generational echo effect, because when you get it. You will be in a better position to negotiate with, to work with, harmoniously, people from another generation than yours. Mark, did your journey involve any formal personal development training? Formal personal development? Well, I've been a psychologist for a long time. Uh, And two, I spent a lot of time in learning development training. I've developed a lot of curriculum. So... Yeah, I spent a lot of time in therapy. <laughs> uh, I'm referring more to uh, following the thought leaders like Tony Robbins, going to their seminars and things like that. No, not really. Um, it's interesting. One of my challenges, and I've always 
been this way is like I, I, like last year I went to the career development career development National Career Development Association and I walk in there and I listen to all these people and I don't look like any of them and so I am Lord I, I mean I'm a recovering engineer I put things in systems and so I'm largely self-taught I read an enormous amount I absorb things very differently than my peers do. It's, it's similar. I, I said I use the Berkman assessment and I get a lot of folks who come to me and I've gone through all, a lot of Berkman training and, and, and I'll get a lot of other career. Oh, I, don't, I don't like the Berkman. It's too complicated. And I said, but that's the cool thing about it is I, I can deal with the complexity. And so the answer is in that way, no, not really. Uh, I, but I'm very, I, I'm, as I said, I'm very much of an observer, and I'm an observer and absorber. What is the Berkman assessment? Just to give me a, sure. a little, a very short explanation what I, of what, what I love about the Berkman, the Berkman's kind of like Myers-Briggs, is the fact that it will tell you how you behave. At the same time, it will tell you how you want to be treated in that same area. It's the closest thing you will get to, to measuring emotional intelligence. And so the key pieces I have, and so you will end up with this. So I said, I've got huge gaps between the way I behave and the way I want to be treated. And because I've changed my behavior based on how I got paid. And by the way, a lot of us do that. And so one of the things I use, the, there's, a, there's a concept inside of the book Quiet called restorative niches. It's finding, I, I you, use the Berkman to discover the areas in which you, you wear yourself out. And then we insert in things that restore you. I have, hmm. I have, I have a client who knows to take knitting breaks in the day. I had a guy yesterday who I've been working with, and he had told him, I said, you need to take four short reading breaks, reading or music breaks during the day. It could be 15 minutes. In other words, take time to inject, to do something that kind of injects a little adrenaline in you. That's a great suggestion. It's, um, it's something that I'm working into my uh, daily routine as well. Very, very important to revive um your energy by changing focus. I like that. Any favorite books, Mark? I'm sure there are. Oh, I got a bunch of them. Uh, I just finished, I did a review on a book called Necessary Endings by Henry Cloud, Dr. Henry Cloud. Great book. And it's based on the fact that endings are a natural phase of life. And by the way, we don't like ending stuff in our lives. No. Right? And new things very often happen when we end things. So that's a great book. The other one I, I, I love is, um, and my mind um, has gone, I love the book Quiet by Susan Cain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my mind has gone blank. I got a couple others that I'm, I, I suffer from CRS. Can't remember stuff. <laughs> uh, um Two is enough. That's good. Okay. Those are two good books. That's wonderful. Yep. Oh, the other one I use, the other ones I use with a lot of clients is Positive Intelligence 
positive intelligence. Intelligence. Mm. It's it's all about mindfulness. It's um, the author, uh, who I can't pronounce his name, is talks about the fact that there are two sides of the brain. There is the sage side, the wise side, and then there's the saboteur side. And there are a dozen saboteurs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and part of it is learning to stay on your sage side three to four times longer than you are on the saboteur side. And it's learning to identify the saboteurs, the one that for most of us, the biggest one is the judge. You're not good enough. And learning to, when those thoughts pop up, go ahead and, and name it and say, oh, there's the judge. That judge is judging me right now. And once you can identify it, you can turn it off. Yeah. I had a client. I had a client who used to call her Judge Stresszilla. Yep. Yep. And the the biggest compliment she paid me was when she said, "My boss doesn't own me anymore." Hmm. In other words, I was trying to get her out of stress before she could look for a job. Hmm. And nice. so, and the other book that I couldn't remember is Essentialism: The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Oh, yeah. That comes up a lot. Great book. Yeah. I actually have that on Kindle. Now, one favorite quote. Well, I gave you my Larry Bird one, um, which is, is, you know, a winner is someone who understands their God-given talents, works their butt off to develop skills based on those talents so that they can learn to become a winner. And that's paraphrased. It's it's the, the key piece there is understanding the difference between your talents and skills. And Larry Bird, that's B-Y-R-D, right? No, it's B-I-R-D. Oh, is it? Yep. Okay, cool. Where do you see yourself in five years, my friend? Well, I'm. my goal is to grow this business into an online community. Um, it's interesting. In two days, we leave for Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And we are looking at moving overseas because I want to take this business virtual, completely virtual. I'm mostly virtual now. And and I have clients all over the world now, but it's the technology. And I want to, so I'm turned 61. I have no intention to ever retire. I want to do less at something I love, which is this is it. And I want to work on my terms. I think a lot of people will resonate with that. And people remember Mark's book, Repurpose Your Career, A Practical Guide for the Second Half of Life. Mark, and that's M-A-R-C, with Susan Leahy, L-A-H-E-Y. Can they get this on Amazon? Yes, you can get it on Amazon. Hopefully it'll be on Barnes & Noble shortly. It is on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle. Hopefully by this summer, we'll have it on Audible. The, the first book, the first Repurpose Your Career is on Audible. And um, we're gonna, I'm, I'm, when I get back from Ecuador at the end of May, I'm going to start, start recording. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, if the first one is on Audible, uh, my listeners get a special. If they go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power you can get the first edition of repurpose your career as an audio download absolutely free so take advantage of that now any final words my friend 
the key thing in doing any of this is know thyself. And that's one of the hardest things. And one of the key, the key features of this is you got to get out of your own head. And that usually requires help, whether it's from someone like me, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a friend. By the way, I've had some brilliant uh, brand stories written by adult daughters. Mm-hmm. They, will see, they will see things in mom and dad that no one else sees. You got to get out of your own head. Now, if people want to take advantage of uh, this kind of growth with you, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. You can go to careerpivot.com, click on the contact me link at the top, or there's a little form at the bottom, and there's a speaker pipe on the right. And oh, by the way, I have a phone number (laughs) right on the top of the page. You can call me and leave me a message. Wonderful. That's wonderful, Mark. I want to thank you so much for uh, a humorous and an insightful and engaging conversation today and for offering our listeners um, richness to expand their lives with. Thank you very, very much. You're very welcome, Lewis. And thank you once again, storytellers, for tuning in live and spending time today with me and Mark. Pay your enjoyment of this podcast forward. Let people know that they can hear it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website, changeyourstorypodcast.com. And of course, at that website, you will find a free gift, a downloadable ebook that is absolutely transformational. It's called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Take advantage of the offer from our sponsor, Audible. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. Select any one of your favorite audiobooks from more than 180,000 titles and download it for free. And also get a one-month free trial of all of Audible's service. Ask yourself in the upcoming week. Is there some role in my life that I'm playing that I really feel enslaved to? I would rather not play it. You know, the scariest thing about breaking the bonds of slavery to that role is just confronting it. The moment you stop and look it in the face, you take away its power. And to help you do that, begin with this question. How can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.